Welcome to the Matthew Moran Podcast. Here you will find a series of in-depth conversations with the world's best nature photographers, filmmakers, conservationists, editors, writers, and publishers. You will get an insight into the lives of creative professionals and industry experts, what goes on in their minds, how they approach their work, and how they make it pay. The podcast also looks at the role that photography and filmmaking plays in helping to raise awareness about the global plight of species. And despite the depressing statistics, we look for solutions at what we can all do to contribute to conservation. All my guests give up their precious time and are incredibly generous of spirit. So this is my chance to share these conversations with you. So sit back, relax and enjoy. This week, my guest is Margot Raggett. For those who've listened to this podcast for a long time, you'll know this is her second interview. So if you haven't heard that and you want to hear more about Margot the photographer and the beginnings of the Remembering series, which we're going to be talking about today, head back and listen to episode number 12. In this episode, we'll be talking about Remembering Bears. This is the seventh title in this amazing series of books, which is now set to raise over £1 million for conservation. Margot's been doing this a long time, and the production process is a well-oiled machine, but she has not let up one bit and continues to spread the message and take action about the perilous situation facing all the species featured in the books. Before we hear from Margot, you can help by purchasing the new book. And not only that, there's still the chance to attend the launch of the Royal Geographic Society in London next Thursday, the 13th of October. For tickets, visit Eventbrite and search for Remembering Bears. There's going to be some great speakers. Gordon Buchanan's going to be there. Tom Mangelson's going to be there. And all the photographers who are featured in the book, including myself. It's the first time I've featured in this book, so I'm super excited. Um, I've never been to one of these events. So uh, yeah, it's going to be great fun. So get the tickets uh, from Eventbrite. And if you can't, please just help to spread the word about this new book, about all the other amazing books in this series. And I really hope you enjoy this one. Margot, I was going to say welcome, but I'm back in your house <laughs> three, uh, three and a half, well, nearly four years ago. Wow. We met here uh, to talk about, well, actually, we couldn't talk about your fourth book because you hadn't announced it yet. Um, but uh, it's really exciting to be back and be in your space again. We're, this today we're surrounded by boxes. Um, yes, forgive me. <laughs> <laughs> it's looking like a proper uh, publishers in in here. But you know, one of the things that you talk about and on your website talk about is you're obviously keeping the cost low. Everyone working remotely now. You have a team of people who you're working with, um, and that's just the realities of you know when you self publish a book. Is mm-hmm. um, there will be a period where you're going to have quite a few boxes uh, <laughs> being surrounded by boxes in your living room. But actually, we're here to talk about your new book that's about to be released on what date? Uh, The 10th of October. 10th of October. And for those of you who don't know, the current book or the book that's about to be released is Remembering Bears, the seventh series, uh, seventh in the series, which is really, really exciting. I'm extra excited because I'm in this one. (laughs) And before everybody thinks this is going to be a 
gratuitous podcast of backslapping. Um, we've got a lot of important stuff to talk about <laughs> as well. So I've actually just had a look through the book and it really is beautiful. And um, I'm going to stop talking because I want you to, to, to tell everyone about it. But yeah, can you kind of, um, for those of, of the listeners that don't know about you or about the Rem Remembering series, just kind of give a bit of a brief overview uh and and the journey so far sure um which is kind of my life story um but yes i um i live in london and i worked in pr for 20 years here um uh, working for a big pr agency that kind of promoted lots of big companies like unilever and boots and coca-cola and at some point kind of became very disillusioned with um with promoting products that i felt weren't kind of making an impact for the world and and I decided to try and find a different way, but I wasn't sure what it was going to be. Um, fell in love with wildlife photography along the way and and just actually decided at that point I wanted to spend time out in the wild and and be in the bush as much as I could because I found it so wonderfully therapeutic and wildlife photography obviously came hand in hand with that. So um, I spent, um, I'm very fortunate to have spent um, a number of years um, spending many months in Africa um, working as a photographer in residence um, in the Masai Mara at a camp called Entim. Um, and I loved that. It was you know, amazing, every photographer's dream. But uh, um, it all kind of came to a head one day when I actually I saw a, um, an elephant that had been poached um, and um, we'd heard noises overnight of hyenas and went to investigate and that this animal um, had, you know, had died and was being attacked by hyenas, but still had its tusks. So um, I was told that poachers had shot him with a poisoned arrow um, and he'd obviously got away, but died anyway. And it was so senseless and I was so angry. And I realized that most safari goers and wildlife photographers indeed never see that side of the reality of what's going on. Um, at that point, I was just covering Africa. Um, you know, you go to a swanky safari lodge and you have your gin and tonic and your canapes and you take some nice pictures of lions and you have no idea that if the lions go down the road, they'll get killed for trying to steal someone's cattle. Um, and I just kind of felt, you know, particularly with elephants that first year, and that was, you know, I, I, I love elephants. I feel a real connection to them. Um, that I wanted to raise awareness of this. I, I couldn't let this death go in vain. I wanted to do something and I wasn't quite sure exactly what. Um, but I started kind of scratching my head and thinking about all the people I'd met in the previous few years and other people I'd seen um, have exhibitions or books and kind of the ideas started to coalesce that maybe there could be a book um, that could raise awareness of poaching and raise money. But um, I was very clear that, you know, I'm not well known enough as a photographer that I couldn't make a book using my images to to achieve that. But I knew a lot of well-known photographers and maybe if we all got together, um, then I would actually have a book that people would want to buy. Um, so that was the start of it. And I started approaching um, photographers I knew and I had the aim to get 50 for Remembering Elephants. Um, I didn't know 50 wildlife photographers at that point. Um, so I would write to someone and say, I've seen this picture on the internet and I love it. And, you know, this is who I am. And would you consider being in it? But, and then I got some big names like Art Wolf and Franz Lanting who said yes. And Jonathan Angela Scott, who've been wonderful mentors to me. Um, and once I had those, then I could ring other people up and say, look, you know, that, you know, Art Wolf's in it, and they say, "Oh well, if he's doing it, I'll do it." Um, and it kind of snowballed from there. 
Um, so remembering elephants, I started putting together in September, sorry, in, in 2015, we did a Kickstarter campaign, um, to fund it, which we now do every year for all of our books, but I had no idea if it would be successful. Um, set out to raise 20,000 pounds and, um, had launched it, sat back with terror thinking I'll never make that. That's so many books. Um, and we hit it in the first 12 hours. Um, and now we raise averagely, we get that 20,000, about 20 minutes on our Kickstarter campaigns, which is just wonderful. And I'm so grateful. Yeah, it's great. Um, a, a great legacy that you've already, already kind of left and sort of created. Um, and you know, that's something I definitely watch with envy having done two Kickstarters myself is how quickly you get this. And it's just, a, it's amazing. I think now coming on to the, the seventh book, it's almost like you have this audience you know, very much ready to go, almost expecting, oh, what's Margot going to do next? What's going to, what's the next book going to be? And when you're going through your social media feeds and you have no end of celebrities holding these up, you know, you're, you, you're accountable now. You've got to be doing a book for every year for the rest of your life. <laughs> God, right? don't say that. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, so this, I mean, this one's slight, slightly different because obviously most of them have been Africa focused, obviously with rhino, some Indonesian species. Um, also with with apes as well coming out of Africa, but this is um, this is stretching even further, right? Obviously, big yeah. into the uh, American market. So, what was your decision around choosing bears as the next species? Um, well, I think um, well, firstly, and you mentioned you touched on it there briefly. I do get lobbied a lot. Like yesterday, <laughs> someone wrote to me and said, "Had I considered puffins?" Um, someone else last week was asking me to do kangaroos. I mean, literally, I get messages all the time, and they all kind of wedge. In my brain a little bit and I sit and kind of ponder on them but I was particularly kind of um, moved by a picture I'd seen of a polar bear that was kind of circulating on social media um, a couple of years ago that was um, looked like it was starving because um, the sea ice um, you know hadn't kind of built up enough and so they hadn't hunted for a long time and it was very hungry um, and I, you know, the impact of climate change has been such a, um, you know, a topic of conversation um, in recent years. So I kind of felt that um, actually polar bears was probably going to be the species I wanted to cover. Um, and that was right. I always announce on January the 1st. And that was right up until about December the 28th. It was just going to be polar bears. And I was running it past a few friends and, you know, friends who are photographers and saying, I'm going to do this. And they were all like, but what about the other species? And I was like, but you've no idea how hard work it would be <laughs> to try and get pictures of eight species of bears. And, you know, I don't Can't know cut all corners, about it. Oh. <laughs> so I agonized and agonized and kind of at the very last minute said, okay, I, you know, the, the other species the other bear species do deserve to be in a book too and to be covered and so I jumped in with both feet and 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 went with it and so it's just I'm very much there are endless species of all of them are pretty much in trouble there's hardly any that aren't um you know and deserve their story to be told um so um you know all I can say is I just act with my heart each year as to yeah. what's kind of most pressing to me um, yeah. that I want to talk about and also what I mean you do have to think what animal is going to sell well as well if you want to raise the most amount of money for that animal i mean obviously going for bigger species does help in terms of lots of them are keystone species so the yeah. knock-on effect in of, of conservation but yeah i mean you, i don't you know remembering rats probably wouldn't <laughs> sell too well 
No, I don't expect so. And yeah, so absolutely it does. But I think it's a really important point. And again, I hadn't kind of really contemplated it. I mean, we're going to go on and talk about projects, but I was just a few weeks ago with a project in Tanzania, which um, we gave funding to from lions and cheetahs, but actually it protects all of the animals in that ecosystem. And I'll explain why. But yeah, so it's, you know, it, it is, you're absolutely right. You've got to kind of have something on the cover that's going to sell. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, that's, yeah, we can talk about that now. I mean, but, you know, my question was, Really, how do you choose the species? Which you know we've covered. It's, it's it is a heart, heart, you know, a heart decision, amongst other things. But also how you choose the organisations that you work with, and does it work that each book will generate money for that species? So, for example, if you've got loads more money in the elephant coffers, can you give a little bit to rhinos, or are you very strict about each book funding specifically for that species? The um, the principle is that the, the book is funding projects that work with that species. But as I just touched on, the reality is that actually, if you give money to a project that is working with lions, they are working with an ecosystem of and course. other species. You know, if they're removing snares that lions might get caught in, anything else that's going to get caught as well, um, you know, it also is being helped. So over time, I've kind of relaxed a bit. It's, you know, ostensibly it still needs to be a project based on that species, but I do realise that actually other species will benefit as well. And so I can kind of, you know, bend the rules slightly, <laughs> as it were. Um, and and how I choose the projects, um, I mean, I'm pretty much driven by First of all, kind of again, recommendations from people who are kind of mentors to me of of decent operators and organizations, people who are respected in the world of conservation. Um, and I think if you start working with organizations that hold a lot of respect out there, then you can't go that far wrong. So there are, you know, lots of projects, so more than I could ever support, obviously, um, out there. And I have to be careful. Some are very noble in their intent, but you know, if you actually look at kind of the impact they're having. Maybe it's not that much. So I I try and kind of go with proven projects that um, are having a, a good impact. Yeah, that's a, a, a tricky one to navigate. I think someone once said to me once, there are more rhino charities out there than there are rhinos, for example. And yeah, yeah that's, um, you know, one thing that I, I always find saddening, even though obviously everybody's got the best intentions and everybody, you know, wants to do the best for a specific species, it's going to be much better if we work together. Um, we were talking about this earlier, the fact that the Remembering series is not run as a charity, it's run as a business, which is mm. a little bit more unusual. But um, were you, was that something that you were thinking about from the very beginning that you wanted to kind of run it more like a business than, than a charity? You didn't, you wanted people to buy things that, you know, they held dear to them and they were beautiful. And then that money would then generate other money to give to these organizations. Did you ever contemplate becoming a charity um i'd love to say that you say was that my in my mind when i started um <laughs> that i had a 10-year strategy yes. for this i was just doing one book on elephants because you know i'd got upset at seeing a poached elephant and it was only when that was such a success that people started saying you've got to do a second book you know and i i really when i thought i'd do that wasn't sure there'd be a third and, and so on so it's been an evolution and a journey and and i in those early years, I actually partnered with the Born Free Foundation, who I'd been donating images of my own to um, for their marketing use, because I knew that I had a good sense I could probably sell some books and raise some money, but I knew I couldn't um, hand on heart know I would know how to distribute those funds and not have them go in the wrong back pocket. And I, I trusted that Born Free could help me. But over time, that partnership, I, I feel like I kind of outgrew it because 
they had their own projects they wanted to support or specific projects. And I would look out at the wider world of projects and think, no, I, you know, I, there's one over here I'd prefer to support. And, and so I kind of took back control after three books and said, okay, I'm going to go alone without them. And when we go into Lions in year four, um, and I did look at um, whether to set up as a charity at that point or not. But the charity rules in this country are that charities are supposed to be things you donate money to, you don't buy things from. And actually, charities are not supposed to sell things. So if you um, look at any of the big charities that do sell you things, whether they're books or T-shirts or whatever, they actually have to set up a separate trading arm in order to achieve that. Um, and then monies have to kind of flow back and forth. And 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 the benefit of having a charity primarily, because it's there's so many kind of bits of red tape around it, but the benefit is that you can claim gift aid on donations. So, you know, you give me a £50 donation, I can claim the tax back that you would have paid, and therefore we've got 60. Um, but we don't get donations. Um, so when I sat down, I sat down, had lots of meetings with a very kind friend of a friend who's a lawyer who could help me set up all the charitable status. And we looked at everything. And you also looked at the board of trustees you'd have to have and the amount of control they would have. And and I just thought we're not of that size. You know, I, I know what I'm doing here. Um, you know, I'm fully committed to 100% of our profits, you know, going out, but equally, I'm not going to have a board of trustees who start kind of, you know, telling me what projects I can and can't support. You know, if, if people want to buy into what I'm doing here, you know, believe me that I'm I'm doing the right thing. So, so we registered with the fundraising regulator, which is a different way around. So they check our figures. Um, and then my old finance director from years ago, who I worked with um, in the PR agency, very kindly came on board as the director. So he keeps it, you know, all on top. And I, I go to him and say, oh, you know, I'd, I'd like to spend this on this. Is that okay? And he gives me the nod. So I know in my heart that I haven't just spent money without running it past someone else who um, has got great integrity and who I trust. So, um, But I do think that what we've done, and we might end up setting up a separate um, charity arm that people can make the odd donation into at some point. It just won't be the primary fundraising. And I think it is, you know, selling stuff is I feel more and more this is the way the world is going. And it goes right back to how I felt about promoting fast-moving consumer goods, as I did for many years. People buy into brands and products because it says something about them. That's what us marketing folk do. You, you say, you know, buy these trainers, they're cool. And, you know, people will think you're cool if you're buying them. And I think we're now at the stage in the world where people want to buy stuff that is doing good in the world and that makes them feel better. And so there's a whole band of organizations out there like um, my toilet rollers from the fantastic Who Gives a Crap. I get that too. Exactly. Yeah. It's um, amazing. You get hundreds yeah. of rollers. Where do you store this stuff? I know exactly. <laughs> but it's 50% is going to building toilets. And, you know, and there are T-shirt companies, T-Mail, I think they're called, that, you know, kind of um, plant a tree every time you buy or, or whatever it happens to be. And I just think people want to do that. They want to feel good about buying something um and so I, I yeah i think there's a growing movement and we're part of that yeah and i think that's great i think that you're right about that consciousness uh, that that many people are having and with with what they're purchasing where does it come from you look at um what's going on in supermarkets since we last spoke four years ago <clears throat> you know vegan sections everywhere plant-based you know yeah. clearer ingredients people do really want to know um and if you can ride that bandwagon, continue to ride that because you know you're now in book number seven, and yeah. things change so quickly in in the world of of commerce and 
Um, and actually, that's one of the things that I'm really happy about is that the digital revolution didn't kill the coffee table book. You know, people still yeah. love to have something tangible. You know, I've been I've had the pleasure of looking through my own copy of Rem Remembering Bears right now. And one of the things that you you feel and I have felt through all the other books is just the weight of the paper, the quality of the print. And you can't you know, we're all just so tired of screens to get off that and look at a beautifully printed book is 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 such a joy. And I think that's obviously why people want to part, you know, their their good money for it. Oh, thank you. Well, I think also, I mean, it it makes a great gift because um, you know, people can say, not only have I bought you a lovely book on elephants or bears or whatever their favorite species is, but also you should know that all of the profits from this book have gone straight to a cause. So it's kind of like the the old adoption model on speed, you know, adopt an <laughs> elephant and you, you get a certificate and know that the money's gone to elephant conservation. Yeah. Now you get a beautiful book yeah, and know that the money's gone. So I, you know, I think that's the way to go. Yeah. And one of the things I love about it is many years ago, before I started making books, I've done four now, is someone said to me, you know, you just you don't make you don't make books for money, but you've actually, you know, you've blown that theory out of the water, Margot, and you've raised obviously with the knock-on effects from selling other uh, stuff, limited edition prints yeah. and special edition books. Um, we're up to nearly a million, over a million dollars, nearly a million pounds. Oh, uh, well, it's, I just had to update our website earlier today. Nine hundred and fifty-two thousand five hundred pounds. I'm forty-eight and a half thousand off the million pounds, wow. um, and it's one point two. Four million US dollars, so nearly a million and a quarter US dollars, um, yeah. which is just mind blowing. Um, I mean, it is. It's you know, it's kind of it's a house, isn't it? Or it's a, it's a very expensive <laughs> yes. house. I mean, it's it's kind of crazy. But you're right. So it's not just from book sales. Um, you know, we, we have. So we've got our launch coming up in a few weeks' time, which I'm delighted you're going to be coming to. So we sell tickets for that. We have raffles. We have auction things that people donate to me. So artists um, make things. I've got an amazing jeweler who I've worked with for years who makes limited edition pieces for us to sell every year. Artists, um, I've got a picture by Emily Lamb on the wall behind me, or a print from the, the painting she did last year, Beautiful. which we auctioned off um, as well. So I, I just feel there's lots of people who want to you know, use their skills for good and, and whatever they can do so you know whatever skills they've got they kind of rock up to me and say if i donated this could you make some money out of it that's and great and if you look at the evolution of all that's one of the things i like about kickstarters you know there's projects stay open for people to view <clears throat> and you know on your ones now you just keep scrolling and scrolling because there's so many gifts yeah not just the book and all the safari luxury safari awards you do and everything so it's yeah it's magnificent and um yeah i think anyone well i mean i know the model's slightly different and the the, all the images you've gathered are from other photographers, but this is certainly the way to make money from uh, a coffee table book. Um, yeah. and, and actually, I think that's something that's really changed. And, you know, we've recently published our, our Fox book back in May. And from the very beginning, when we had the idea to collaborate and do this book, it wasn't just about us and our photographs. You know, we, we could make a pretty picture book about foxes, but what's the message behind it? And I think those days have kind of gone now of just taking a beautiful picture and expecting the world to protect that yeah. habitat or protect that species that that there needs to be in the world of nature photography nature filmmaking this this strong message um you know I've, I've been watching some of the frozen planet and it's all geared towards that now it's not just let's celebrate it's like let's protect and yeah. this is what we need to do it's so devastating the news um, that that's going on with biodiversity crises all around the world that we need to do everything that we can. And um, yeah, raising a, a million pounds over the last seven years, you 
do you, do you take time to to take stock and reflect on that? Do you do you celebrate that when you're not you know packing boxes of limited edition <laughs> books? Um, th- not terribly often um, is the answer, but I think when we you know once a launch is out of the way and actually if it, I, I mean I'm my friends always laugh at me because I I'm always incredibly anxious and stressed in the run up to every Kickstarter and every launch and. I had a friend was laughing at me the other day saying, but you always are like this, Margot, and it's always fine. I'm like, but it might not be this year. I never take it for granted. And I think that's probably, I mean, someone has said to me, that's one of the reasons that we are successful because I'm not kind of complacent and and I pour everything I can into making a success every year. But um, but yes, to go to your point, I mean, obviously, so we would be nothing without our contributing photographers and, and thank you very much for your beautiful picture in the book. Everyone should well, of course, check it's it kind out. Of, I was thinking about what you said earlier about, you know, knowing a few photographers for elephants and then asking a few and getting like some big names. Now you must be turning photographers away. People are like, oh, can I be, you know, like I did, or, you know, I've had, I shot a bunch of bear pictures yeah. 10 years ago and it must be tough now, you know telling people no sorry we're full <laughs> it, it is and it, it gets harder and harder every year because say i mean we've now worked with 250 photographers and we've only got about 80 places um and obviously i'm very grateful to all of those 250 who've donated to the previous books but i can't fit them all in another book um so yeah that the kind of balancing act as to how to manage that is tricky but but I, you know i hope that photographers feel proud that they've contributed even just to one. And if they don't get picked again, they've they've played a role in the bigger journey that we're on and that they, you know, should be proud of themselves for that. And I do feel really passionately that, you know, that to go to your point about, you know, no longer can you just take a pretty picture and make a pretty book. You know, we if you were um shooting fashion, you know, you pay models um to appear in your your photography. And yet lots of photographers going out and, you know, taking pictures of these animals and not giving anything back to those animals, just, you know, taking pictures and then making money off them. And I, again, I feel like you owe it to that animal. If you're making your living off photographing or leading tours to go and see these animals, you need to give something back to them, you know, not least because they won't be around in the future if we don't. Yeah, that's right. And I think it's very different because obviously, as you know, a photographer yourself, it's very hard to make money and to make a living from photographing animals. So, you know, we do need to keep our, we we do need to hold fast when it comes to people paying a fair price for for image use. And this is not just, oh, you're going to be in our book and you're going to have a credit and isn't that great. You're actually donating to the wider cause of whatever species the book is representing. And I think, yes, there is that warm, fuzzy feeling that you get. It's a great thing to be part of. I, I've got it now. I'm not, there's not part of me thinking, oh, well, Margot should really, you know, leave, set aside some budget for the photographers. It, yeah. it's, it, it doesn't matter. You're part of something that's quite unique, especially in the fundraising world, as we've already discussed. So it's kind of a win-win really for everyone. And, and, and also the previous six books have proven that because you've got photographers coming back again and again. Yeah. And I think it's, I mean, one photographer was saying to me a couple of weeks ago that the reason they love being part of it is because, and I know you touched on this earlier again, that, that there's such a small direct link back to tangibly, I can talk about the projects that funds have gone to. So again, it's not just kind of 
donating to a big organization that, you know, as you say, you quote WWF, but, you know, even whether it's a photographer giving images to an organization like that or an individual donating, you know, 10 pounds or whatever, you've got no sense of where those funds are going or how they're being used. Whereas I can actually show you the person who you're helping to support to do something yeah. on the ground. So it's very kind of meaningful for people, I think. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's, uh, and also say our purpose is twofold. I've always been really clear on this. It is to raise awareness of the plight that animal is facing and also to raise funds for those fighting to protect it. So either one of those alone is less powerful, I feel, than then we were able to achieve both. So say we've yeah. sold tens of thousands of books and we, we were chatting earlier when you were setting up, and but it's not just the, the thousands of books we've sold, it's the PR coverage that's resulted for that. So with the, our message that you know some of these animals are in trouble and why is, is getting to so many places around the world um, and helped by celebrities, as you say, holding the books up. So we're, you know, we're getting that message out to millions of people but we're also raising money, and I, I think it—you know—you you, you have to kind of do both, in my yeah, opinion. I think that's great, and also because—and my last guest was Charlie Hamilton James, and we talked about that raising awareness, and it's something that—I mean—he said, you know, we don't need to raise awareness anymore. Everybody knows. I mean, okay, not everybody knows, but I kind of get his frustration with it. But the difference is, and what I like about what you're doing is that there's direct action. There's buy this book or this print, come to the launch. Here's what we're going to do with the profits. And this is exactly where it's going. And it's not to knock Greenpeace or, or WWF. They do obviously really great work. But I think maybe it's tied back into what you were talking about when people buy this book, they get that feeling of, okay, I'm getting a beautiful, beautifully produced book with the top wildlife photographers taking the best pictures. But they're also getting that feeling of, oh, well, actually, some of my money put fuel in that lad, that you know, Lion Project Land Rover or yeah. it bought welly boots for someone walking in the rainforest. And and that's that's really that that's definitely a really good feeling when you get that. Yeah, absolutely. And and Charlie actually is a contributor to our books and and lovely. And um the one time I met him was in the Masai Mara and we had dinner together. Um <laughs> I love the fact that actually you can go out and wherever you go, you're gonna bump into someone yeah. who's associated with the books now as it's well. It's a village, isn't it? With, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, it's lovely. I was also... That can I also went... be a bad thing as well, <laughs> but <laughs> we won't go into that. Yeah, yeah that's true. But so, I mean, one thing that um, gave me a very selfish thrill was um, I was in Tanzania, Kenya and South Africa um, on this most recent trip and um, every single camp I went to had copies of our books on display um, and so, like some I'd never had anything to do with whatsoever. So some, you know, I know like Nomad Tanzania, you know, we they've donated safaris, they've bought books from us to have in, in there, but, you know, others were just a total surprise. So the fact that they're penetrating out into all these corners of places that, you know, that, that's, that's so nice. a selfish little thrill of course. that and I you, took. Yeah, maybe, well, maybe that's, you know, when I asked you about you, do, do you celebrate that? Those are the, yeah. those are kind of those, those little wins that you get. And, yeah. you know, we're experiencing that now with the fox book getting lovely comments back just people emailing you and and saying like oh wow this is really nice and some people move to tears and you know maybe because we're british we kind of think oh what you've cried over our fox book but you know when you touch people and reach them then you know that you're doing the right thing and that's yeah. that's why you do it isn't it that's, yeah. that's the most important thing actually just going back to the the organizations that you've supported mm. of which you know there must be numerous now but do you have any really positive stories that have come back from you that you felt like wow you know I've we, we've really made a difference to that organization or I'm sure there are a few but do you have any particular examples 
that um, that have really resonated with you over the years of producing these books? Um, I can give you examples of projects I love and I, I've got very enthusiastic about supporting, but I I have to emphasize say what you know what we are able to do is raise funds to give support to these organizations who are day in, day out, you know, doing the actual hard work of trying to do conservation. And, you know, our contribution allows them to get on with it. And then they're still out there having to fundraise again over and over. And, and it's it's never ending. And that's something that actually really struck me again that very first year and why it became a series, not just an individual book with elephants. So that first year with elephants, we raised money that put tires on 10 vehicles um, in Meru National Park in um, northern Kenya that had um, were anti-poaching patrol vehicles that had not been out on the road because they didn't have the tires. Um, but And they didn't have fuel, so we paid for fuel for six months and we paid for a grading machine to be fixed to go and fix the road so that they could get to the far side of the park. But then obviously I realized that fuel was going to run out in six months and those tires would, would be worn down. And what happens after that? You know, I, I could pat myself on the back and say, oh, haven't I done a wonderful job? And and actually, no, because I, you know, I helped for six months and then I disappeared. And so, yeah, that's why I realized that we had to keep going and we had to become a series and we had to keep generating funds. And obviously we do, as we discussed earlier, you know, support projects that had different species some projects like, such as the zambian carnival project we've given funds from lions and cheetahs and wild dogs too because you know they're working across all of those animals on their their landscape and actually say you know snare removal or whatever it happens to be helps all of those animals um so i'm you know i'm always just really happy to be able to support good work by you know great organizations that I respect and that are doing interesting things. But I do get drawn particularly to the kind of innovative ideas. So sure. the one I mentioned earlier that I was just visiting in Tanzania um, is the, uh, it was called the Ruaha Carnival Project, but they merged a couple of years ago with Lion Landscapes. Um, so it was them who I met up with a couple of months ago. But um, what they do is they give camera traps. And I like camera traps because it comes from cameras, which obviously is you know our, our, our heritage and our route. They give camera traps to um, villages to compete with each other. And they have to put them in the place that they know the wildlife is going to wander past. Um, and they get points for what wildlife it goes past. Amazing. And the points get allocated based on the scarcity of those animals and also kind of you know how endangered they those animals are or how threatened they are. So, you know, I want Wandering Impala would, you know, only get you five points. But I think, um, what was it, 20,000 points for African wild dogs you got. Um, <laughs> and so if you've got a pack of African wild dogs, you know, and there's eight of them, then, you know, it's 120,000 points. And apparently they all love points. And so for a month, the villages have the camera traps up. And I was able to go with the team that then went and kind of unbox them and put onto the computer there and then what image they they'd got from one particular village that month. Um, and the winning village that then gets $2,000 to use on healthcare or education or youth empowerment. Um, and then there are runners up that get kind of $1,500 or $1,000. And obviously the purpose of that is, you know, we have no idea. And you and I were just chatting in the break here about, you know, people get grumpy about living alongside foxes here. And, and the, the worst that foxes do is raid your bins and leave a bit of rubbish around you know out in africa you know you can get killed by or your child can get killed and trampled by an elephant or lions coming in or so people you know 
are resentful often of having to live alongside wildlife and we have no comprehension of what it's like for them and really we can't judge them. But you know, And they're like, well, why should I put up with lions coming in? It's easier for me to just poison them and not have my cattle stolen than um, you know, the other way around. So if you actually give reasons to people to want to live alongside that wildlife because they can see the value of it, then that's, you know, that, that's the golden ticket in my opinion. And so I love this program of, of giving out these donations. So we were able to just give a straight donation that covered that program, like cash donations to local communities. Um, and you're also then helping people as well, which is, again, critically important. And when I set out, say, poached elephant first year, I was like, give guns to rangers, they shoot the poachers, <laughs> that's conservation, that's what we need to do. And it, it's so much more complex, but it always comes down to do the local people want to live alongside the wildlife. Do they care? Are they motivated to care? And we can't just judge them from here and tell them they should. You know, you have to give them practical solutions as to what they're actually dealing with. I think that's hugely important. And yeah, it was something that came up a lot, you know, and has come up a lot for me in the last five years about foxes. And particularly when you have, you know, people that are, they love wildlife. And they may very well have probably bought some of your books or donated 50 quid a year to WWF or whatever it is, um, you know, about issues of crop raiding or, or poisoning lions or whatever, but they don't want to have a fox in their back garden. And mm -hmm. I think that, you know, this looking, gazing through this sort of romantic lens about what, you know, uh, what it's like out in East Africa, experiencing photographing you know watching animals on safari actually yeah you're right the, the the big issue is what's going on on those buffer zones and um you know again when i interviewed charlie last month he talked about the successes of gongosa national park in mozambique and how that was a really main focus of the development of that park was also about educating um young women and girls and having lots of you know like coffee growing projects on the edge and just of course, yeah, it's it, it seems bizarre to think, but you know, I, I've spent time in Canada and I love raccoons, for example, but raccoons are annoying to many, many people. They're kind of like our foxes and, and the only difference is you go to Kenya or Tanzania and it's elephants for those people. So yeah. we have to bear that in mind when we're you know, when we're looking through it, you know, our, our Western lens. Yeah, absolutely. And and that brings us right on to bears because actually, um, you know, I was lucky enough to get to go to Kodiak Island in Alaska um, back in May um, with the intention to try and actually uh, photograph bears because I never have before and, and have, be able to have a picture in the bear book. Um, I didn't get any pictures I could use. So this, I'm not in this book, um, which I like to think proves to people um, that, you know, it's not all about just getting my picture in a book. Um, I've produced this book regardless. Um, but but what was really poignant was just chatting to the, the local guide who I was with for a week. And he was talking about growing up on Kodiak and how the old ways of living alongside bears that the local community had and just kind of sensible measures like not putting your bins out until the morning the bins are going to be collected so that they don't come in and raid, um, not letting your dog off the lead because it will chase the bear and then the bear will come back and chase the dog and then potentially there's conflict. A lot of them have been lost because they have such a transient community. So Kodiak has 
um, a huge fishing community and you get fishermen coming in from all over the world um, and they haven't got a clue how to live alongside bears um, and live alongside safely. Um, and so therefore, you know, there's a lot of conflict with bears um, and bears get exterminated if they are a problem. So, mm. you know, uh, you don't get that many foxes that are exterminated, but, you know, a bear comes into town and breaks into a car because someone left an orange juice in there, um, that bear will be shot the next day. Um, And so, yeah, it's fascinating. Again, um, you know, there are some species that are a lot of the bears that are a lot more under threat than others. Um, But I had one expert saying to me, you know, well, you know, certain species are, you know, are doing just fine. I'm saying, but if doing just fine means that, you know, they, they, they come into town because they're tempted by an orange juice or bins or whatever, and they're going to be killed, we have to kind of stop and think, what kind of fine is that? Um, you know, that we just continue to think we're lord and master over everything. Yeah. Um, and that's a whole other topic of, of conservation conversation to have that, um, you know, there's very much those who are very scientific and kind of, um, you know, logical about, um, you know, you, if you can maintain the population numbers so far, you know, you've got management techniques to do that, then, you know, we're, we're preserving the species versus the very emotional side, which is nothing should ever be killed or moved or anything else. And they should just be free. And, you know, th- there's got to be somewhere in between those two extremes, I think, um, yeah. that we have to find. Yeah. I, it, it's interesting when you're talking about Alaska, cause I also, I like, I went there in 2003 for the first time and, it was just after that 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 documentary Grizzly Man came out. I don't know if you remember that story of Timothy Treadwell, yeah. the tragic story of um, him being out there. And it's an amazing documentary for anyone who hasn't seen it by Werner Herzog. And um, one of the things that really stood out for me in that documentary was from the conservation perspective, because Timothy Treadwell thought he was protecting bears. You know, at the end of the season, he would go out and camp with them and he filmed them and he got all this amazing amateur footage. Um, but one of the, I can't remember who it was. It was a, a, a senior parks official was being interviewed and he said, you know, you have to remember that bears and people have been living together, you know, for thousands of years. Mm. And I'd never really thought about that. And it, and, and it kind of challenged my thinking of what I know, you know, I no longer think any, any anymore. And I think photography has really changed that as well is that wilderness is something that's out there that we're not connected to, but actually we've been living together for all these years in some what you know in some state of harmony um of course there's respect and you have these animals that are potentially very dangerous we are also a very dangerous animal well the most but, dangerous yes animal. absolutely yeah. yeah absolutely yeah and 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 thinking about that is thinking thinking like okay so how how do we coexist and that comes you know back to elephants raiding crops it comes back to foxes pooing on your doorstep this idea that we should be above and controlling everything. It's like, well, I often ask people, well, what, what world do you want to live in? Like one yeah. with no wildlife, you know, we have to expect, um, something, I mean, we don't have those dangers really here in the UK, but that's how we would have lived, you know, tens of thousands of years ago with these dangers around us. And, and it's almost like we need to unlearn, what we've been taught over these years that you know we, we don't go into the woods it's a dangerous place to be stay in your home on your ipad or whatever but actually going out there and enjoying that and of course i i had those experiences with with bears and also find it funny now for so for example you talked about the rubbish um and they've got bear proof bins everywhere out on the west coast of vancouver island where i did my first book bear proof bins everywhere and here we don't have any fox proof bins and you just kind of think well 
every night Fox is going to these council bins, pull all the rubbish out, just yeah. make Fox proof bins. It's 2022, for goodness sake. They're really good at finding food. So there's so much, yeah, you kind of like uh, sometimes aghast at how slow we are at moving. Yeah. And there's also, there's places in Europe where bears are actually, you know, I think there's in Northern Italy, you know, there's a bear going into a bakery and kind of helping itself and walking out again. And um, I mean, it, again, I suppose, you know, there is a difference between things that can kill you and, you know, versus being an inconvenience. And And in this country, we've eradicated anything pretty much that's going to kill you. Whereas we have to appreciate, you know, the, the challenges. And I actually had an interesting conversation. I was in Botswana in February um, in a camp and chatting to some local um, people f- uh, who were in the camp um, who uh, were saying to me, um, you know, what do you do? And I said you know, the whole story and how I started with elephants. And and he was saying, well, actually, you know, elephants are a huge problem in Botswana. Um, you know, my family has a farm and these elephants come in and raid and, you know, our children get killed on a regular basis walking to school if they're kind of walking out unaccompanied. And and he said, we have too many elephants in Botswana. So, you know, what's the answer? We need help. How can you help us? And I said, okay, well, I started mumbling about projects we'd supported like bee fences that stop the uh, elephants from coming in and and they're great but there's just like there's actually too many and and we again i i just kind of urge everyone to realize it, conservation is so complex and you know we just cannot be naive about it you know we have to be very pragmatic and understand what local people are actually dealing with and those dangers that they're dealing with and and accept you know, what locals think is the right way to manage it rather than imposing with our Western views what we think they should do. Yeah, absolutely. Um, no, I couldn't agree more. I was interested in now, I mean, this is great that you mentioned earlier about how you you, you never get complacent because, yeah, you've done seven of these books. And I mean, it, it, obviously it, it must be a well-oiled machine. I think have you used the same printer for every yes. book? So that's great. Yeah. You've got that consistency, that that relationships built up. And I know you've worked closely with Eddie, previous guest on yeah. podcast, also a good friend. Um, but now your your year must be very set for you. And you've got uh, the lead up to the book, um, uh, getting all the images in, the designing, the production, the printing, and then the the award ceremony. So how do you find time? to relax and is there a kind of you know maybe maybe sort of go through that year and tell us where (laughs) the time off is for you because I know you've obviously got this incredible drive just to get things done and this perhaps you know you talked about having anxiety but I think some some anxiety is healthy it keeps you on your toes and keeps you being pushing forward and driving forward but do you um do you take time off do you can, can you switch off um it's a good question. Not much. Um, I mean, the, the timetable, say, I mean, to when people who make books and, and I'll see what you think, but when they say you make a book a year and they kind of. <laughs> I was going to interrupt you actually yeah. and say, actually, you know, I'm, I'm looking at it through a, somebody who makes books every five, six years. So, yeah, you're yeah. doing a book every year. It's quite, quite a feat. It, yeah. Even when you're not gathering the images yourself, it's still um, it's it's an unbelievable amount of work. Yeah, it is. And so what I am fortunate is I've got a really good team around me. Um, as, as we say on our website, um, you know, everyone is part-time and freelance and does other things as well, but everyone pretty much knows what their role is now. So, you know, we announced the book on the 1st of January, um, but I, what it's going to be, but actually in December, I'm 
having to decide and having to kind of edit a, a, an announcement um, video that we're going to release on the 1st of January. And then we're working towards a Kickstarter, which again, I have a variable timetable. So the earliest we do that is kind of February and the latest April. Um, but the Kickstarter is so much work because I'm also gathering in all of the rewards that we're going to sell on Kickstarter, whether it's safaris or artworks or whatever. And at the same time, calling in images and, and at then the same marketing time, it as well, getting it out there, letting everyone know that you've got this Kickstarter, even yeah. though you've got this audience, you always need to reach new people, right? Yeah. And there's just, it, there's a lot of work in that. And, and again, you know, there's lots of wonderful media organizations who support us. And so are very happy to kind of report that we're doing that that year. But, you know, the physical aspects of, you know, producing images and making them available to media and captioning them and doing a press release and, you know, all of that, um, so yeah, it's just, yeah, Kickstarter, we run a competition every year for 10 places so that people um, who are not on our radar but have got great pictures of that animal can also enter. And um, I have to find judges for that and work with a magazine. <laughs> um, and we're still in design. And then we try and be done by the end of May in design so that we um, have June to kind of proof. And then I go out to Italy in early July and, and print the book. So the answer is that after that, I normally am able to kind of take a, a, a few weeks where I can kind of slightly take my foot off the pedal. But there's still always things going through, interviews, people wanting, you know, whatever it happens to be, people asking where their book is from the Kickstarter because then we're <laughs> fulfilling it and they, my book's gone missing. Where is it? Um, and then, then yeah, then when we work towards the launch and, and where I had kind of got a bit of a rhythm on the launch, obviously COVID changed everything. Of so, course, yeah. um, you know, we had to kind of pivot very rapidly and go from, um, our normal event at the Royal Geographical Society to an online event for, for cheetahs, um, with speakers of Franz Lanting, um, and Chris Ekstrom from San Francisco and, um, Laurie Marker from the Cheetah Conservation Society oh was also goodness. in uh, San Francisco and then Jonathan Angela Scott in Kenya and trying to find a platform, an online platform to, to run that and sell tickets for and, and coach them as to what buttons they had to press when they went live. Um, so that was a whole different level of stress. Um, and now we're at a stage where we have a hybrid event. So actually we're back to the RGS, but we can sell tickets online. So um, there've been some benefits from from COVID, you know, like we we did an online exhibition and we're doing that again this year rather than a, a real life one because we'll make more funds for or fundraising that way than spending money on physical Great. space. Um, but yeah, th there isn't much of a gap. No. Um, How does it compare to being a CEO of a PR firm? Um, do you know, I, I certainly have more satisfaction for what we're achieving and, and to go to your point about, do I stop and, and, you know, that my favorite thing, and I always say this, my absolute favorite part of the job is when I'm able to contact an organization say, you know, you know, that thing we discussed, I'm sending you $20,000 today. Yeah. And I personally always make the phone call to our bank because it's, a, you know, I have to do that to do an international transfer and, and then tell them to tell me when it's arrived. And then they tell me it's arrived. And, and I love that more than anything because I get immense satisfaction. Whereas previously, you know, in the PR world, we could get amazing coverage for the launch of a new limited edition, you know, can of Coke or whatever it happened to be. And and you you got the thrill of doing that. But at the end of the day, it kind of felt a bit hollow. Whereas the the grounding I get from being able to actually give it to organizations that mean a lot. And and you know the the thing I really try and do um, is carve out time and the opportunity to go out and actually see some of these projects. But again, I'm kind of cap in hand to 
tour operators and safari camps and saying, you know, if, if I want to come to Tanzania to visit this project, will you let me stay for free? Which is what, you know, Nomad Tanzania just did. Because again, I can't justify using Remembering Wildlife money to go and stay in a swanky safari lodge. So, <laughs> and I can't afford it anymore myself. So, you know, I, I'm kind of on a constant um, blag to try and <laughs> yeah. find ways to get out to, to visit these projects. But it's so important for me to kind of feel rooted and grounded and understand what the issues are. And to the point I made to you before, you can't sit in London and think you know, you know, what the problems on the ground are. Um, I was with a um the Endangered Wildlife Trust in South Africa back in June and spent a couple of days um with their wild dog um coordinator. Um, and one of the things we went to do, and people might be a bit surprised at this, is we went to feed dead impalas um, to wild dogs. And the reason we're doing that is because the wild dogs had denned on a farm and the farmer was very unhappy that these wild dogs were there um, and said, uh, and he was a, a, a game farmer, as in he would breed impalas and things like that. So not a farmer we would think of as sure. putting potatoes in the ground. <laughs> but as a result, if the wild dogs are out there hunting every day because they're locked into that one piece of land for a while while they've got their puppies, um, then he's going to lose stock um, and that's money to him. So we were the way to keep him happy and to persuade him not to kill them. I mean, it is illegal to kill them. But it happens. Um, it's you illegal know, to kill foxes. Yeah, poison, <laughs> you know, whatever it happens to be. So you actually, you know, so the reality of his conservation is, you know, we were there at 4.30 in the morning with a frozen impala, <laughs> chucking it out the back of wow. the car and dragging it along with a rope so that the wild dogs would come and, and feed off that and feed their puppies to protect them. And, and you know, I've seen text messages from farmers or heard voice notes from farmers saying, if you don't sort this out now, you're going to have dead dogs tomorrow. And so, again, you know, the, the, the pretty reality of the Remembering African Wild Dogs book, which is so beautiful, you know, that the reality of keeping them alive is so very different. And I need to know that to stay motivated to keep producing these books and, and to do it in an educated and informed way that, you know, I'm, I'm giving the money to the right projects and, and you know, know yeah. what's actually going on with these animals. I'm not living in some fairy tale. Yeah, I think that's great. And and you mentioned earlier, I can't remember exactly how you worded it, but it was like, you know, when you were a uh, CEO of a PR firm, you were 98% in front of a computer. Yeah. And now you're the CEO of, well, want for a director of a of a successful um, book fundraising organization and you're spending 98% of your time in front of a computer. Yeah. But also it, it, it shows what you said about conservation being so complex. I mean, that's incredible, desperate measures to try and help one family of, I mean, as far as the wild dogs concerned, they, they think, oh, this would, this would be a good place to, to raise our pups. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and you're throwing like frozen impalas out there just to have, try and help this one family. Yeah. So that's, you've got that on one end of the scale. You've got WWF, you've got anti-poaching patrols. It's, it's, yeah, I think you're, it's, it's a really important point for everyone to understand that it's an incredibly complex. Um, and, and I think, it, we're often all too quick to judge about what is the right or wrong thing to do, but uh, everybody's trying to do their best. Yeah, and there's also so much um, disagreement and debate between conservation organisations <clears throat> as to the right way to go about these things. And and as I've you know, and some things will work in one country and 
not in another place. So going back to the point about trusting what local people think will work in their area. And and I don't want to just knock WWF endlessly. They donate and support, and lots of organizations that are very large support amazing projects and will give funding to um, great projects. Um, it, my point for us is just, it's a bit more tangible with us. Cause you know, that, you know, that there's a thing on my social media of me going out with the guy with the tracking equipment, you know, that we were feeding the Impalas was, and, you know, you know, we've helped fund him. So it's just a bit more personal. And I suppose, you know, keeping that kind of personal level, um, you know, is, is, you know, going to yeah. be important to us that it doesn't just get lost. Um, I mean, I don't ever see that we'll be, you know, kind of raising millions a year. I, I think, you know, we're a bit more grassroots than that. Yeah, but, sure. Um, but still, just kind of having that direct contact with the organisations um, is so important. And it's uh, it's interesting. Uh, we've, from the Lion Book, a lot of the projects that we supported um, were also supported by the Lion Recovery Fund, which is an organisation set up um, uh, or co-funded by WCN and also the Leonardo DiCaprio Foundation. Mm. But the guy who runs that, Peter Lindsay, is highly respected. And and I've had long chats with him about organizations he thinks are, are worth supporting. So, you know, the, he's giving more money than I am to the same projects. But I kind of know if I'm supporting a project he rates, then, you know, we're, we're doing a good job yeah. too. I mean, there are some organizations, and even Born Free, when I work with them, you know, they, they have a team of people that have to analyze all of these projects and whether they're effective or not. But if I hired a team of people to do that for us, we'd make no money. We'd no, have nothing left yeah, to give. Yeah, that's right. So. And actually, I was going to ask you that. And and again, just to kind of get clear about the method is, you know, if you are a charity, you have to be accountable for every penny you spend. And I know you do as well, but it's not, that's then not your job. So once you donate money to an organization, other than going out yourself and like you said, being educated and informed, you don't ask for any accountability with that money. You just see an organization that you like and that you've done your due diligence has become you know well recommended. Yeah. There's the money end of. Yeah, absolutely. And um, it would be a luxury if I, you know, was asking them. But again, it's like, um, again, how do you account for these things? And, and I feel for some of these organizations because it's like, you know, they need to do a report at the end of the year to say how many wild dogs they saved, um, <laughs> you know, or how many elephants they didn't get killed. And how can you tangibly, yeah, sure. you know, kind of ever measure those things? So as I've kind of gone on this learning curve and this journey I, you know I've, I've realized you just have to trust good people who are doing good work um, and know they are doing their best and you're enabling them to do that and you can't ask for spreadsheets in the way that you can in the corporate world and say you know I want to say well 100 elephants would have been killed but you know only 98 were so you know who knows but if they weren't there worse things would be happening yeah, for sure yeah Again, going back to uh, my last interview with Charlie, it was interesting him hearing him talk about uh, Gorongosa, and I, I didn't know about the history of it, but he effectively, I don't know if if you know, it basically kind of funded by one guy, um, a philanthropist in, yeah. out of Boston, and um, you know, he I just read recently that he's donated over a hundred million dollars over thirty years to this place, and and I mean, you know, compared to what you've raised. Is, is enormous and 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 I often think and this is where your my mind just kind of spirals it's on one hand the most extraordinary amount of money to raise over a million dollars and almost a million pounds and on the other hand there's so much money out there yeah. sloshing around that 
really should be pumped into all of these projects and not just that but you know proper education about climate change and the perilous situation that we're in and do you, how do you, how do you kind of reconcile that when you're when on one hand you're like oh my god this is incredible i've raised nearly a million pounds but on the other hand compared to what's what's going on it's just a drop in the ocean really yeah and it is um sometimes it becomes very demoralizing and um i remember being out in south africa a few months ago and having um a kind of a late night chat in a bar with a couple of vets who go out and, and do all the kind of collaring and rescues for for wildlife in that area and saying you know is there any point you know you know am i achieving anything and they're saying but you know if you didn't do that that animal would have died and 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 someone actually asked me um recently in another interview you know that can you give us tangible examples of you know what difference you've made and and to go back to that point i can't tell you that you know because we helped fund that organization and we fed dead impalas that you know therefore eight dogs you know are alive that wouldn't have been um there are some examples where we were able to do funding for moving translocating wild dogs back into Malawi last year, which had not been there for since the 1950s. And, and they've had puppies, so that I can say that. But, you know, again, we gave some funding and a lot of organization worked on that. You know, I can't claim it for us. But the analogy I ended up coming up with is that, you know, we're another hose fighting a forest fire. And, um, you know, you, one hose will not put out that forest fire, but one every hose counts. And if you had one less, you know, who knows? Um, and so I have to just take the wins, take the satisfaction from, you know, when I do get reports back of things that have worked. You know, I just had someone messaging me yesterday from Malawi that some elephant collars that we'd um, funded a year ago that for various reasons had not been um, deployed have now been deployed because these elephants are crop raiding, and so they the idea is they'll warn the farmers the elephants are coming in, and they can be there to try and divert the elephants and not come in. Um, you know, I, I get a kick from knowing that you know our elephant collars out there now and going to make a difference, hopefully, yeah. um, to that farmer. And um, so, yeah, it, it's it's intangible, that, but we all need to concentrate on it. We all need to fight. We all need to try and do whatever we can to to put our little hose onto, um, you know, a situation that if we don't, you know, if no one's fighting, if no one's doing anything, it will all be gone. Um, and I think actually we haven't talked about the title, but I'd love to because, it, I, you know, I always think it's so important. And someone was um, questioning it on social media yesterday, but there was the reaction I get is, oh, remembering, what a, what a sad title, remembering elephants or remembering rhinos but it was inspired originally by um a quote from sir david attenborough which we he allowed us very kindly to um to put in the elephant book which is the question is are we happy to suppose that our grandchildren will only ever see elephants in picture books because that is the trajectory of where things are going <clears throat> and it's not as simple as that you know there are some places where there are too many like botswana other places they're disappearing too quickly you know it's more complex um but ultimately the general pattern of how many of these animals there are now compared to 100 years ago, compared to 500 years ago, is down on every species that we've covered so far. And so, you know, we might only remember them in picture books if we don't take action. And so these books, and you talk about them being beautiful and quality, I, I want them to be something that will last because if that came to pass in 100 years, this would be the document as to what they were like in the wild by you know some of the best wildlife photographers out at the time. So we'll remember what they were like. 
but by God, I don't want that to happen. Like I've, I actually feel like I'm going to cry. I don't want that to happen. You know, so I want to provoke people. If we don't do something now, we will only remember them in picture books. So um, I'm unashamed in provoking people with the title of our books because you know that that is a very distinct reality if we don't actually, as a world and a community, stand up. That's brilliant, Margot. Superb. Um, and I don't know, I find that I find the remembering title, yes, there's a, it's almost a solemnness to it. And I think, I mean, you know, you know, from PR days to provoke people, you need to get their attention. And I think that title is very powerful and you should never apologize for Thank it. You. It's, it's, it, and it, and it, it works. It really does. Um, just quickly going back to, um, the, you know, the grassroots organizations that you're going to support. One thing that I was interested in, obviously you're going to, Lots of these images are shot in very rich nations, Canada, America. You know, who who are the grassroots organizations there that are going to need that kind of funding? And when do you start, you know, thinking about who you're going to support and who's going to need the, the the money more? I mean, that's, yeah, something that I'm curious about. Yeah, I mean, the reality is that there are some species such as American black bears that, um, you know, I think, I can't remember the exact figures they're saying there's, you know, all the other bears together, you know, there's still more American blacks sure, than there are yeah. that. So, so probably we're not going to do much for American black bears. But again, there are organizations like WCN who are working on projects for Andean bears um, and community projects. Again, much like Africa, employing local community to you know make things that can be sold to raise money for these bears. The bears are coming in and and kind of getting onto farmland and and being killed, and so working to try and protect them. Um, there's an organisation, Animals Asia. So Jill Robinson um, is a remarkable woman who I had the chance to meet earlier this year. Um, and she campaigns um, against the bear bile trade um, and has virtually single-handedly kind of turned that around. Incredible and, what she's done, yeah. Yeah, and, and you know, it's a very, very moving what she's done. And so, again, I mean, our book is actually, she, she talks in her afterward about um, having touched paw, the hand to paw with a, a bear that was in a cage um, as a result of the bear bile trade that changed her life um, and that she felt, you know, she could walk away that day and that bear could not um and that determined her to to set up animals asia and everything that she's done to kind of campaign so we've donated the book to uh, sorry dedicated the book to that bear um because Lovely. that bear has had an impact for so many other bears um so certainly again we'll be supporting her and you know th there's just other organizations that come through but the way i tend to you know ultimately we're able to support eight to ten per book um oh, i try and give kind of meaningful donations so you know that uh, our donations have ranged from five to fifty thousand dollars say um depending rather than on spreading it too thin you want to have a, the biggest impact possible exactly yeah. exactly because i you know i could give a you know, a thousand dollars to a hundred organizations, but it's better to kind of choose. So again, you know, ones that have come recommended and people that we already work with. So, and, and then it depends on how much I raise. So going back to my complete fear and terror at the moment, I don't know what we'll do at the launch because really we make everything at the launch, all the Kickstarter money, funds, making the books, hiring the Royal Geographical Society, everything, you know, we're kind of at Point zero, and now when the book comes out, it depends on how many people buy the the book and yeah. how many people come to the launch and how many people support the auction. All of those things determines how much money we actually have to give out. So yeah. I have a kind of priority order of organisations that are going to get some funds, and then and then as it shakes down, and it, you know, if, in 
previous years. Fortunately, you know, we've then gone on to have a bit more than I was hoping. I can then say, you know, who else is out there? But also try and support a good spread as well. So to try and actually go out to um, organizations in different countries and not give it all to South Africa for wild dogs, for example. Of course, of course. So, um, so yes, yeah, so, and, and that thinking I have to do in December when we finish launching, which is when I thought I would have some time off, but I don't because then I'm thinking, where do we put the money? Um, oh my goodness. So, yeah, it's a fairly relentless cycle, actually, I have to say, well, in a positive way. Yeah, totally. And it's brilliant. I mean, it's really inspiring just listening to you talk and, and uh, you know, I really... Um, you know, really appreciate what you do. It's just, you know, it's quite, quite mind blowing and, and the energy that gets put into it is, yeah, it's, um, um, yeah, I, I remember actually I was talking last time and I, I, you know, I always struggled a bit with social media. I felt kind of like I've, I'm, I'm of the age where I've sort of landed in between analog and digital and kind of wrestle with it. And at the same time, you were telling me that you ran three, four accounts by yourself on through all the different platforms. Yeah. And I remember leaving here last time thinking, right, I'm just not going to complain anymore. I just need to get, <laughs> get on and do this stuff. Yeah. But yeah, no, it's really inspiring. And I wanted to finish up really just by asking about you as the photographer. And I know you went out to Kodiak to try and get shots possibly for the book. Yeah. And it's a testament to you and your ego that you didn't put it in, <laughs> uh, that you did, you know, the quality wasn't there. But yeah. are you are you allowing yourself some time to photograph? Um, and and because obviously it takes time to get those good pictures. It it does. Um and not really is the answer. Um I say, I mean, when I was just out in Tanzania, I was obviously in a safari park. I was in Ruaha National Park. So, you know, I was able to try and get some pictures, you know, on the few days I had on safari. Um, but you know, I, I would say I've probably got four or five pictures this year. Um, and when I was working full time out in the Mara, you know, I would get that, you know, in a in a week. So it's very different. But it's Again, I have to kind of question what purpose, you know, how is my time best spent? Um, and what, you know, I, I've got a great portfolio of lion pictures. Do I really need any more lion pictures? What would I achieve with getting more lion pictures? And it's not to say I wouldn't just adore the idea of, and sometimes I kind of have a little fantasy and I think I'm going to take next year off and I'm just going to go and work in a lodge and all day long take pictures of lions. And that sounds dreamy. Um, and then I, kind of give myself a talking to it and realize that that's, you know, just indulgent of myself and not necessarily going to achieve anything. Yeah. And I think it's, and I, I'm not putting myself in the category of these people at all, but people who inspire me, people like Jane Goodall and even Laurie Marker of the Cheetah Conservation Fund, I, I find it really marked that both of those have said to me, um, to, to name drop that I've met both, which is lovely, but um, both have said they, you know, they started as kind of researchers and they realized that they could have more impact by not sitting watching the animals that they love and would rather spend their time doing, but by being out on the road and fundraising and talking or whatever it happens to be. And um, yeah, I kind of find myself in that same position um, that, you know, it would be much more fun to just sit with the animals. But, I know it's tough, that isn't yeah. it? And it's funny when I think back, well, two things come to mind. One is Pete Cairns, you know, who runs Scotland, the big picture, um, as joke, jokes that he now uses his 500 millimeter lens as a doorstop. And he hasn't taken any pictures in years because actually he's can make more of an impact, you know, running that organization. Yeah. Um, but also this dream that you had, you know, when you, when you packed up your, your job and sunlit safaris and yeah. spending your time, um, around lions and elephants. And of course you've done that and it's been great, but, um, yeah, it's there. I guess there's a sadness to it because that's the joy. That's why you get into it. But ultimately you're, yeah, making that 
decision and knowing where your time is best spent is a, is a good thing to acknowledge and recognize. But having said that, I think you can probably afford yourself some some time off and you get this up to it being such a well-oiled machine. And that's, I guess, the skill of any director is being able to delegate and stepping back and yeah, having, maybe, sounds like, I mean, I'm projecting, but it sounds like you need a rest, Mark. <laughs> Well, I've got you, you catch me as I say, just four weeks out from our launch. So I am kind of on in hyperdrive at the moment. Yeah. But once we get to the other side of that, I'll probably be a bit more relaxed. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'd say I mean I even just hearing you talk there, say that just the reality I have to remind myself, seeing that poached elephant, I will never forget the sight. I will never forget the smell. I, I had to throw the clothes away I was wearing because they got so permeated by the smell of it. Mm-hmm. And just you know, that was a beautiful creature with a soul that, you know, I'd been photographing, you know, other animals just like him the day before. And he had no voice, you know, he was killed by humans. He couldn't protect himself. He couldn't do anything. And, you know, which is incumbent on us to be their voice. So, um, it's kind of like a, you know, a purpose that, um, I have no choice but to follow really. Yeah, that's brilliant. And again, completely inspiring and I always love talking to you when we get the chance, but you know, we're, everyone's just so busy all the time and doing their projects. I really, really appreciate you um, taking the time out of your busy schedule to talk to us. And hopefully again, people listening to this, actually we should tell them by the time this comes out, when, when and where they can get the book, where the best place to buy it from is. Yeah. But the best place to buy it from is our website, which is rememberingwildlife.com. Um, that's because we get the full 45 pound cover price that goes straight to us. If you buy from a retailer like Amazon or Waterstones or whatever, they take half. So we get a lot less. So buy from our website. Yeah. And is there anything else other people can do, you know, like how you would might, you might encourage someone to get involved in it with it, with a charity. Is there anything else other than buying a book that people can, can do to help? Um, spread the word, tell people about us, um, say, I mean, we actually, we have such a wonderful group of volunteers now that, um, kind of help. So our launch events on the the, um, 13th of October at the Royal Geographical Society, and we've got a whole bunch of people who will be manning the front desks and selling you books and, you know, bags and, and things. So, um, we, we've, we've got a lot of support there, um, for sure, but just, yeah, spreading the word and telling people about what we're doing and, um, buying them as gifts for other people, you know, all of that um, all makes a difference for us. Brilliant, Margot. Thank you so much again. And um, yeah, you've been on the you've been one of the few people that have been on the podcast twice. Wow, um, which is exciting, and it's growing. My audience is growing, and um, yeah, I'm really thrilled to have you on again. Thanks so much for your time. Oh, well, thank you for coming over. Thank you. Thank you so much, Margot. And it was really great to go back to her house. Four years later, see her surrounded by boxes and working still with so much vigor and energy and tirelessness that's really inspiring. And, you know, I often think these things, you know, look can look glamorous from the outside. The all the celebrities holding up books and lovely events at the Roger Graphic Society, all the wonderful gifts and artwork outside of the books that can be bought through the Kickstarter. But behind all that, there's Margot and her team of people just working hard, hard, hard to make all of this happen. And I really appreciate, I always really appreciate the effort that goes into making these projects, which are often put together for, you know, very little money 
the people putting in lots and lots of hours um, for causes that you know do make a difference and that people really believe in. So again, you can help. You can buy the new book. You can buy one of the other six books. They're they're all really really beautiful. You can buy them all. There's they're really a superb collection. And again, just to reiterate, Thursday the 13th of October. If you'd like to come to the event, there are still tickets remaining. Visit Eventbrite, search for Remembering Bears, and it would be great to see you there. Thanks again for listening. What a busy period of guests coming up with Wild Screen Film Festival just on the horizon, Wildlife Photographer of the Year, lots of good people coming into town. So it's a good opportunity for me to snag some great photographers, which I've done. So stay tuned and we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.